Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, I can't uh, pretend to even begin to understand where everyone's heart is. In fact, your word says that only you alone know the heart. Uh, And in fact, your word goes on to assure us that you not only know it, but you will minister to it. So we pray this morning uh, that you would send out your word to the end, that it would move our hearts, that Christ would be formed in us, that he would grow in us. Lord, that you would get glory. Uh, Lord, not only that we would benefit, uh, but indeed this beautiful city of Santa Fe, beautiful and broken, would come to know uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. A few weeks ago, someone uh, after the service pulled me aside and said, you know, I I had just preached a sermon about music in the church and singing in the church. And not too long before that, I had preached about uh, submitting to governing authorities. And they said, you know, John, is, uh, is there something going on where you're getting the controversial preaching topics? Are those being assigned to you? And, and uh, you know, I just want to assure everyone here this morning that that is not happening. Um, so let's get on with this sermon about you giving your money to the church. <laughs> well, in 1534... Martin Luther completed his first translation of the Bible into German, and he included with it uh, an introduction that I I would commend to you. It's well worth reading because it's really a a little essay about how to read the Bible. And and in it, he says something that's always kind of struck me. He says, you know, it's really a shame that only four books of the Bible are called Gospels because all 66 books of the Bible really, in essence, are Gospels in that they all point you to the good news of Jesus. Jesus affirmed that in Luke 24 when he explained to his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is to say all the Bible, interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I thought about that as I was looking at this passage. I think this has fresh currency in a culture like ours which traffics so heavily in sound bites and memes and TikTok videos Um, chopped up little bits of information that we kind of gather and cobble together and, you know, end up with a worldview. But one one of the old church fathers said that when it comes to the Bible, there are some beautiful little bits and bites, you know, but they're, they're like tiles on that that make up that mosaic back there, that beautiful mosaic. You know, um, that if you look at the individual pieces, they're they're beautiful in their color and in their construction, uh, but you've got to stand back. You've got to stand back and take it all in, or you'll miss the greater beauty of how all those pieces come together to show you Jesus. That same church father went on to, to kind of caution us in reading the Bible and saying, you know, we need to be wary that we don't pull pieces off the wall and, and put together a picture that we like better, Right? We take in his picture. And and I I say all that because we're looking at one of these passages that I think very often gets extracted from the Bible um, without us getting a bigger picture of what's going on in the Scripture. And that way it's like 1 Corinthians 13, you know, which is the wedding chapter, you know, the love chapter. It's really a chapter about gifts, actually. Um, It's it's like John 3.16, you know, that, that ends up on the poster at the football game. Um, you know, pulled off the wall um, without uh, seeing the bigger picture of what is being communicated in the Scriptures. And so I want to notice how Paul begins this passage. 
He doesn't say in this passage about giving, again, a passage that is often easily distracted. You know, if you talk to a, a church giving consultant, and those people do exist, you know, very often they'll say, oh, you want to increase the giving? Well, go to, go to 2 Corinthians 8. Make sure you preach on that passage, you know, to get the giving uh, ginned up in the church. So we're, we're going to be cautious about that. And Paul wants us to see the bigger picture. He doesn't begin his chapter by saying, we want you to know, brothers, how important it is that you give. He begins instead, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. Paul never wants to lose sight of the big, beautiful picture of the gospel. We can't just zero in on what it means to give to the church without first getting our arms around the greatness of God's grace, which has already been given to the church. That's critical. It's critical in any conversation about giving that we begin with. We are on the receiving end of grace. So I want to look at really three aspects of what that means. First, I want to consider our capacity to forget God's grace. Second, I want to look at how the gospel connects us to gratitude. And thirdly, I want to look at our continual need of the gospel of grace. Okay? Capacity to lose sight, of the, lose sight of the gospel, connection to God's generosity in the gospel, and continual need of the gospel. That's what we're looking at this morning. Now, Paul's writing to a church where something's clearly not right. You can kind of, I don't know if you got a sense of it when I read it, but he's dancing around some stuff. He's being a little bit more oblique than he is being direct. He doesn't explicitly say what's going wrong, but he gives some clues. And in verses 6 and 7, he talks about his compadre Titus uh, as, as needing to complete this act of grace that has been begun, that has started. A little further on in verse 10, he talks about finishing what had been started a year before. And, and, and in verse 20, after our passage, he makes mention of a generous gift that's being administered by us. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about taking up a collection, a specific collection for the poor Christian community of the church in Jerusalem. Now, from its earliest days, the church had to contend with extreme poverty among Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, each of Paul's trips to Jerusalem in some way connected to alleviating that poverty. So he saw it when he went there on his first trip. He brought alms from Antioch on his second trip. As he was leaving on his third mission trip from Jerusalem, the last thing that Peter, James, and John said to Paul was for him to remember the poor, which he says in Galatians 2 is the very thing I was eager to do. And on his final trip back to Jerusalem, he tells Felix, the governor of Caesarea, that he's come for the purpose of bringing alms to my people. And it's fair to say, it's fair to ask, you know, why is the the delivery of alms to the church in Jerusalem so central to Paul's mission work? Why is that always on the agenda? And I think here's why. The steadfast faithfulness of that church had cost them greatly, but it benefited others greatly. Their faith in Jesus cost them greatly. They were excommunicated from their faith community. They were ostracized. Family bonds were broken. Commercial ties were destroyed. Uh, they were left with grim prospects for life. And yet at the same time, you could hardly find a Christian in the whole world who could not trace their faith back to that church. And if it weren't for their tenacity, for their faithfulness, for their generosity in supporting missions and sending people like Paul out, the Gentiles never would have heard the gospel. 
So Paul wants the, the Corinthians to make that connection. They want to understand the connection to Jerusalem and, they, and, and to honor it. It's clear that they had previously pledged support to the church and they hadn't fulfilled their pledge. And he wants, you know, this, this is a bigger deal than just like you and me listening to NPR and, you know, the NPR fundraiser, which, uh, you know, comes on all the time. And I don't know why I listen to that thing, but, um, you know, and fulfilling a pledge card and then kind of being reminded, oh, yeah, I've got that check to write. It's, it's bigger than that. Uh, they are actually, uh, Paul wants them to know, spiritually indebted to that church. And, and, and it's a debt that needs to be honored. This is why Paul calls the gift that they need to give on more than one occasion an act of grace, right? Now, I, I just want to pause for a second and consider how easy it would be for Paul to just do some finger wagging here, uh, for Paul to just shame them for breaking their promises and uh, demand that they just do what the Bible says they ought to do and tithe and give and, you know, pony up. I mean, you might even, I kind of wonder this week, you know, how, what an amazing thing that this chapter is even in the Bible, because Paul very easily could have just given word to the messenger or attached a little note to this letter that basically said, look, you said you'd give, you're not giving, pony up. But, so why, you know, why all the energy? Why all the explanation? Why get into this in such an in-depth way? I think that's a reasonable question. I think it's because Paul doesn't want them to merely do the right thing. He wants them to do the right thing because they believe the right thing. That's critical. He, he, in other words, he doesn't want bare obedience. Uh, he wants a beautiful obedience. A beautiful obedience that grows from hearts that have been freshly gripped by the gospel. So, so wildly, in verse 8, he goes so far to tell them that he's actually not giving them a command. Now, only people who can give commands tell you they're not going to give you a command, right? But I, I think he's taking those pains because he knows that you can get obedience without ever getting to the heart. And that's its own kind of disaster. You know, uh, he, he wants more than a check. He wants changed hearts. I can remember a time, I mean, I'm a parent, I've got four kids, uh, they're, they're all a little bit older now, but when they were little, I, and this is a true story, my son ran up to me and he said uh, that his brother had hurt his fist with, with his face. <laughs> his hand hurt from hitting him in the face. Um, and you know, you get into that and, and uh, apologies are in order. But, but let me ask, I mean, if you're a parent, you know, what happens in 99 0.9% of the time when you command the apology. Say you're sorry. And then what do they do? Sorry. And, and on the face of it, you've gotten the obedience. You've, you've gotten bare obedience. The right words were spoken. The command has been carried out. But what have you also got? Right? You've got a heart that is completely unmoved, totally untouched. But what happens you know, when we take the pains, when we don't take the shortcut, when we work and appeal with our children so that understanding might come, so that the command would connect with the heart. It's beautiful, right? You, you see something so much better than a compelled apology. You, you begin to see fruits that, you know, are born from understanding. 
Maybe sympathy for the person that you've hurt, a desire to change, hope for the future, a capacity to love others more than you love yourself. That is why Paul is taking these pains. That's what he's after. He's after what he calls in verse 8, proof that love is genuine. Martin Luther said that a law driver insists with threats and penalties, but a preacher of grace lures and incites with divine goodness and compassion shown to us. For he wants no unwilling works and reluctant services. He wants joyful and delightful services of God. So Paul isn't after bare obedience. He is after recapturing the beauty of the gospel that is slipping their grasp, right? Reminding them of a time even that when he, when he said, you know, I used to see the gospel at work among you. Um, a year ago, you not only started to do this, he says, you actually desired to do it. And so he circles back and goes, look what happened. I, I want you to finish well. I want to see not just your actions, but your desires moved and changed by the gospel. I once saw a flourishing of gospel life here together. I saw a church that, that hadn't gotten over the gospel. People who lived in grateful response to God's incredible generosity to us in Christ. And that, that their sluggishness in giving for Paul is deeply concerning because it seems that the heart has grown cold. They promise to support the church, but they're not doing that. Now, this behavior is, is indicative of this particular church. They excelled in certain things and ignored other things. Uh, they were pickers and choosers. They loved flashy, sexy ministry. They loved, you know, big, public, uh, powerful preaching, miraculous gifts, healings, butts and seats. But they emphasized those gifts to the, exclusions of, the exclusion of others, and it had the effect of disconnecting them from the gospel. So that in a subtle way, their ministry had become more about what they were doing for the Lord than what the Lord had done for them. And, and that inevitably, it seems to have created a situation where people are more about what they're getting out of church than what they can give out of gratitude to the church because of what's been given to them. Now, those are some particular challenges for that church, but there's some universals in here too, right? I mean, I, I've, I think every church is fighting and contending to keep the gospel at the center because we all have an amazing capacity to lose sight of it. I think the gospel is a commodity easily lost while all kinds of other things are, uh, good things are going on. I mean, it's not, you know, and Paul commends them on these good things. It's not that there's not a lot of good things going on. I mean, I, I read this list. I used to sit, you know, regularly make reports to a presbytery committee. You know, a grim uh, panel of Presbyterian pastors who were checking in on my progress as a church planter, and they wanted to know about the money and the numbers and the, you know, the programs and all the things we were doing. And, you know, and I'm sure if I ever gave a report that had half the stuff going on in Corinth, they would have stood up and applauded. I mean, they are commended for a strong faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul says they've got knowledge, which basically means they're a church that cares about their doctrine. I mean, how much would my committee have loved that? They're not slow or scared to speak divine truth. They've got a gift of what Paul calls utterance. There's boldness there. There's sincerity. There's earnestness. They take care of their pastors. They've shown love for Paul. And yet, Paul says, I long to see you excel in everything. Everything. And what Paul isn't saying there, he's not saying, I want you to be perfect Christians. 
you know, so that there's no uh, failure or, uh, among you. He's saying, I want you to get a hold of the most important thing again, which is everything. The gospel of grace. The whole shooting match. That's why it says in verse 10 that his concern isn't so much their sin of inaction, but that their desires have changed. He, he, again, he says, you know, I remember a time when you not only were saying you were, you'd give, you were kind of psyched to give. But in seeing that change in desire, he is identifying, I think at the same time, a very deep disconnect. He's explicit about it in verse 13 when he says, in essence, you're a church with incredible resources, but you're content to be the church with incredible resources while your brothers have nothing. There's something deeply, terribly troubling about the fact that they aren't feeling the pain of this other church. After all, they're connected in the body of Christ, aren't they? I mean, Greg just talked about how when we admit members, you know, it's not just about this little group, it's about we're members of the family of God, the body of Christ, and yet there's this numbness, there's this incapacity to feel the pain of others. It is as if, you know, I mean, I, I think there's some doctors in the room. Is it concerning if you go into the doctor and you can't feel your left arm? Something is deeply wrong in the body. It is as if arteries have been clogged, nerve endings have been seared, the blood of the gospel has ceased to pump into this community. And it doesn't get much more troubling than that because it is as if they have been cut off from the body of Christ. But Paul isn't without hope. He knows that Jesus' faithfulness always prevails over our unfaithfulness, right? So he tells them a story about a group of Christians that, been, that have been generous and moved towards generosity and fueled by a deep and ongoing appropriation of the gospel of grace. And he tells them about what's known as the Macedonian gift. This is a, a gift pulled together by a group of churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. These churches were famously poor. They were also famously persecuted. One commentator said that these churches were baptized with the baptism of suffering. And this suffering was the result of both poverty and persecution. So he wants to tell them about a gift that they gave. And if he just stopped right there and knew that they were poor and persecuted, you might think, well, what he's about to say is tell a story about maybe a church that really couldn't give much but had really good desires. Or, or maybe a church that you know, managed to scrape together a little um, and had good desires but wasn't able to do much. But the story Paul actually tells is of a church that gave not only according to their means but beyond them. He tells a story of a church that experienced abundant joy and affliction, that showed a wealth of generosity out of extreme poverty. Is that, I mean, one that didn't have to be begged about giving, but gave beyond their means with joyful hearts and, and begged to do more. And, and you read all that, you go, wait a second, um, giving beyond means, joy out of affliction, generosity out of poverty, not having to be begged, begging to do more, it all sounds contradictory, doesn't it? It all sounds impossible. And Paul says, actually, you're right, it is, except for the gospel. That's what makes it possible. It is incomprehensible. It is impossible. Were it not for the greater story, which Paul sums up in verse 9. This is uh, one of the great gospel summaries in the Bible. If you ever want to share the gospel with somebody in one verse, here you go. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In just one verse, Paul summarizes the gospel, reminding them that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, left his Father's throne. He left the riches, gave them up, the joys and delights of heaven, perfect joyful fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, setting it aside, not considering equality with a thing to be grasped, as he told the Philippians, at great cost to himself, why? For us. He took on the terrible weight of human poverty and depravity, which was ours, so that by his poverty, we might become rich, co-heirs with him forever. The story of the Macedonian gift only makes sense because of that story. That's what can happen in the church that never gets over the gospel. That's, that's what's possible in a church that, that isn't always wringing its hands over the financials, but spends most of its energy rejoicing in grace. Churches that treasure the gospel become churches that foster more gospel stories. There's a funny scene in that TV series called Curb Your Enthusiasm where this woman, a friend of Larry David's, who's in, you know, kind of the main character in the thing, uh, has bought a new house. And she says, you know, Larry, I want you to come and see my new house. And he's standing at the front door and he just stands outside. He goes, no, I get it. That's okay. And she's like, Larry, come on, I bought a new house. Come on, walk in. And he goes, no, I, I get it. You know, uh, closets, bathrooms, bedrooms, ceiling fans, fixtures. I get it. I thought about that this week because I thought, you know, that is a posture we readily take when it comes to the gospel. Right? Been a Christian a long time. I get it. Jesus died on the cross for me. I believed it. Now I can get on with my Christian duty. But Paul writes to Christians in the church to say, I don't know that we always get it. We need to spend our lives pressing into it, getting it, never getting over it, exploring its possibilities, finding that God is gracious to bring us back again and again, reminding us that at the heart of our troubles, at the root of our sin, isn't fundamentally a failure of duty, it's a failure of delight in the gospel of grace. Of course, Paul isn't anti-duty, but again, he wants nothing of a duty disconnected from the gospel. So he reminds them of Jesus, telling them, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've known it. You've received the gospel by faith. Now live like you actually believe it. Telling that story of that church, of the Macedonian gift, he's not pitting one pious church against a less pious one. He's not trying to gin up guilt. He's saying, let's get back to the gospel. Look at what happens in a church that never gets over that. Look at the blessing this produces for everyone. Needs of others are met. We're edified. We get joy. God gets the glory. Don't forget what Jesus did for your sake. Now, of course, the gospel can be understand, understood propositionally. There, there are billions of pages. Lots of trees have died printing tracts explaining the gospel in a very pithy terms. But we can never know the power of it until we come to understanding it and receiving it personally. Right? Not, not just as the greatest story ever told, but as the gracious story that has given me life, that I've believed, that has reordered my life. And Paul says that the only way to know it as more than a proposition 
but personally, powerfully, is to know it in your poverty. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains what it looks like to enter his kingdom. And the very first step into that kingdom is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you, you can't get into the, the kingdom if you're rich in spirit, if you think, well, I've, I've got a lot to contribute here. You know, I, I'm sure Jesus will be thrilled uh, to have me on the team. The rich in spirit can't enter. Entry into new life starts with knowing, believing that you're a debtor, that nothing in your hands you bring but simply to the cross you cling. So he tells the Corinthians that their wealth and their prosperity and their success and their security and their ease in life, may, you know, it's possible those things, you know, good gifts of God, but that you've started to look at them as your life, that they've moved you away from what is always true of every Christian, regardless of our resources, that we're all debtors to grace. It's always true. That's kind of his one-two punch to this church. We're debtors to grace and we're rich in grace because of Jesus. Get, get a hold of that, and we'll begin to make a whole new kind of gospel calculation in the heart. We'll begin to say, because Jesus did everything for me, I can never do enough for Jesus. But, but let's be honest, right? That's the tricky part. Because when it comes to thinking about giving, and, I, and I'm talking about in the broadest way, in, in our time, in our talent, in our treasure, uh, we're all making the calculations, aren't we? I mean, if, if you're like me, this stuff is highly calculated. There, there are kids to put through college. There are tax write-offs to maximize. There are, there's bandwidth and boundaries to protect. You know, hopefully, all to the end, that my lifestyle will go basically undisrupted. And, and even aside from that, there's just cultural norms that, that we've kind of imbibed and, and believed, you know, the stuff that everyone agrees is wise and prudent and sensible and makes for a good life. I mean, none of us have ever seen a, an ad for a financial institution predicated on the idea that we would become more generous, you know, that, that we would be more sacrificial, that we would give up our lifestyle so that others would live better. We've never seen that ad. But what might it look like if I lived every day finding my life in Christ and resting and rejoicing in the fact that for my sake, he didn't protect his boundaries. He didn't consider himself more important than me. He didn't hang, cling to the riches but became poor for me that I might become eternally and immeasurably rich in him. You know, at the end of the day, Paul not only doesn't want to command the church, he doesn't really have to because the gospel itself is that compelling. It's the only thing that can turn our duty into delight. That's why Paul concludes in the, in the next chapter, kind of summing up all this, where he just says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What would it look like for me and, and maybe you to um, plunge into gratitude as a lifestyle to Jesus? God's the gracious giver. We're just those who either live in recognition of that or not. So Paul concludes with one more story of God's grace. It's in verse 15. It's, uh, he, he, he says that whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. 
Uh, he's referring to a story in the Bible in Exodus 16 um, about how God's people would gather manna in the wilderness after they'd been freed from, from slavery in Egypt. And uh, it's a story fundamentally about God freeing us and then feeding us. And, and here's the thing about gathering manna. Moses tells us that the young and the vigorous gathered more because they had the ability, while the old and infirm gathered less because they didn't have the ability. No surprise there. But, but even as everyone gathered as they could, they equitably measured it out to each member so that everyone had enough. In fact, if anyone tried to hoard manna for themselves, they saw the manna go bad. And not only did they see the manna go bad, they saw life go bad. There was kind of a curse attached to that. So when Paul refers to this story and saying, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack, that's what he's talking about. Not when everyone could scoop up on their own strength and how it was distributed among everyone according to their need. But what he's really focusing on is how no one would be able to scoop up anything apart from God's grace. The manna came by God's gracious provision. That's really the point of the story is the manna. Young or old, weak or strong, no one ever, you know, went to their kitchen and whipped up a batch of manna for themselves. All anyone could ever say about manna is that it rained down from the sky. And that it was left to us to gather and, and that it was something that we couldn't hang on to forever and that it had to be used or it went bad. It had to be shared or you, you lived with the rot. Paul tells that story because he wants us to know that what's true of manna is true of money. Plain and simple. No one's ever been a producer. We're all just gatherers. Some of us are really good gatherers. Some have been more stronger and more energetic and gathering more than others, but all of it's come from the Lord. None of it lasts, and it's all given to be shared so that in the kingdom of God, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, which means there's no hoarding in the kingdom of God. And at the same time, whoever gathered little had no lack, which means no one goes begging. So where does all that leave us? Well, I think on the one hand... It means that our money and how we use it is far more deeply connected to our relationship with God than maybe any of us in here is comfortable with. You know, I don't know how to change the setting on my phone, but literally every week during church, I get a iPhone usage report uh, that pops up on my screen, and, uh, and it is depressing. It's grim. It is like wild to consider how much space this little brick that I carry around in my po pocket takes up in my life. Um, you know, and I thought about that, like, what if, you know, God help us, but what if, what if a little alert popped up on my phone that, that kind of uh, gave me a data report on how much I think about my money, the space it occupies in my heart, how much I'm thinking about it, how my daydreams drift in that direct direction, um, how, how easily, it, how it makes me unbearably proud on one day and desperately despairing on another. You know, how easily I believe, how many times in the week have I thought, this is what sustains me. This is what offers possibilities for freedom for me. This is what provides me and my family blessing and all the stuff of life. You know, I mean, who among us couldn't say that a look at our, you know, that my bank statement would give you a very sharp sense of where I'm putting my trust and what I worship. Jesus, help. 
have mercy. But here's the other side of it. Here's the good news of the gospel. Our money is far more deeply connected to the grace of God than we ever conceived. We have the grace to repent and believe, to not lose sight of the deep, deep love of Jesus, of the riches of the grace of God, of his fatherly care and provision and tending to his own, that we could look at everything and go, Lord, thank you for raining this down on me. May it be used for your glory. That he's he's always more gracious than we're ever apprehending. He He always gives far more than he ever demands. That he's gracious to provide us materially. Jesus says, hey, look around. Look at a bird or a plant. Look how beautiful they are. How well cared for they are. How much more does your Father in heaven care for you? And he gives us greater security than Charles Schwab will ever be able to deliver. He doesn't demand that we make a life for ourselves, that we hoard and chase and grind and worry and pay for it all by our own blood, sweat, and tears, but lavishly paid himself the highest price, purchasing us with the blood of his own son that we would have a greater, richer, more joyful, and liberated life so that all of us who were once poor and needy would be made rich and enjoy the riches and encourage one another, and push the boundaries of the possibilities of what God might do through his church and the kingdom of God and bringing blessing to others. So that's just something to delve into this week, and I think all our life, because no one was ever richer than Jesus, and no one ever became poorer. He gave all the riches away, becoming poor, that we might become rich by his grace and unto an abundant eternal life. All of us are poorer than we would like to admit. But if you know Jesus, you're richer than you've ever dreamed. If you know Jesus, you're a debtor to grace, so rich that whatever it is we give, we always receive more in return. And whatever, if we're ever getting a sense of the depths of the grace of God, we always are struck with, I can't give enough. May God give us the grace to live with the gospel as our treasure. May it grip us and touch us. May we encourage each other in it so that we would know where our security really is, that we would be set free to become spendthrifts in the kingdom of God for the good of one another and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that it um, disabuses me of the story that I so often tell myself. Uh, that I am the main actor, uh, that the plot revolves around me, and that it is up to me uh, to um, make a life for myself. Thank you, Jesus, that you became poor, that I might become rich. And Lord, would we, would you give us the grace by your Spirit that we would come to know that to, to greater depths and in a growing way, and in a way that not only benefits us personally, but edifies our brothers and sisters in Christ, that brings good news to those who are far off, that we're poorer than we'd like to admit, but in Jesus we are eternally wealthy. And you have given us resources beyond our imagination to spend for your glory. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.